0: For those of you that are new to Sovereign Race, we are at present going through a series on the Gospel of John. Thank you. The last two and a half months, we have been walking with Jesus and his disciples, and we've actually specifically been in the upper room, and we've heard the upper room discourse, five to six chapters where he's just communicating to them and loving them and really sharing with them what is most important and what is on his heart for them in a most important way. Well, now we leave the room, And we set our face towards Calvary. And this scene now takes place late at night, on the night before Jesus actually dies. Late at night, the night before, he hangs at Calvary in our place. It's John chapter 18. There's actually two things that go on in this chapter. There's a plot, and then there's a subplot. The main thing is all about Jesus. But the subplot, we start to examine Peter, ...and what he's going through. And So what we're actually going to do today... ...is read from verses 1 through 14... ...and then we're going to miss a few... ...and come back to it next time... ...and go to 19 through 24. Reads as follows. When Jesus had spoken these words... ...he went out with his disciples... ...across the Kidron Valley... ...where there was a garden... ...which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him... ...also knew the place... For Jesus often met there with his disciples, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we have, we have sung to you and you have been proclaimed in song and encountered in song as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray now as we come to your written word and your preached word, would the same thing happen? Would you be proclaimed as King of kings and Lord of lords? or would we see you for the mighty and incredible King you are? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you do things that no preacher can ever do? Would you open our eyes to behold the glories of the Son of God? That we may marvel. That we too may fall back in amazement who you really are. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. One of the things we like to do in our home at different times is tell stories. Sometimes those stories are not real ones. So like Josh the Chocolate Boy stories, obviously that hasn't been a book written about that, or Amy the Sweet Girl, or Queen Lydia, which is her favourite. They're not actually known stories but there are other stories that we encounter like this one the chronicles of narnia and in particular the lion the witch and the wardrobe which we enjoy together as a family and i want to by way of helping us to understand what john 18 is about i want to take us today to chapter 14 of the lion the witch and the wardrobe it's entitled the triumph of the witch and listen to what happens A great crowd of people were standing all round the stone table. And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Cruels and hags. And incubuses, wraiths, horrors, ephrates, sprites, orkneys, wusses and ettins. In fact, here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried. The fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first, hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he had no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. "'but he made no noise. "'Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, "'pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, "'then they began to drag him towards the stone table. "'Stop!' said the witch. "'Let him first be shaved.' "'Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers "'as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward "'and squatted down by Aslan's head. "'Snip, snip, snip,' went the shears, "'and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground.' Then the ogre stood back, and the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan, looking so small and so different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we're afraid of? said another. Oh, how can they? said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes! And now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever before. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now as they worked about his face putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all the rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, and jeering at him. Alas, at the rabble had had enough. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table, some pulling and some pushing, He was so huge that even when they got in there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. The cowards, the cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he really was a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags, holding four torches, stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked at the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel. And it was a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But his looked at the sky. Still quiet neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? No, I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take out my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge line, despair and die. C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think is one of the best pieces of literature outside the Bible that has been written. And that's because C.S. Lewis wrote that book specifically to sing the praises of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The whole point of him writing the book when you study C.S. Lewis is he wanted to reveal to children and to people all around the world through a novel what Jesus Christ really has done. And so all the way through the book you have Aslan as the great lion who is meant to point to Jesus, the one who would die in the place of Edmund, the one who would die in the place of mankind. The one who is perfect and grand and great, but who would die as a substitute. The white witch is Satan, the father of lies, the one who is seeking to own the world, own Narnia, and win Narnia, and oversee Narnia, and demand from Narnia all allegiance and all love. Edmund then is us, it's the human race. He's a young boy who is foolish and impulsive and selfish and unfaithful. He's meant to sing of us, a people who instead of going after Aslan, the great lion, who instead turned to the white witch and been deceived by her and decided to live for her and her world instead. And the stone table where Aslan is then sacrificed is meant to point to Calvary, to the place where Jesus Christ died, in the place not only of Edmund, but for all the world all those who would put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And to follow then that line of thought, what I want you to realize is that John chapter 18 is painted for us as an analogy in that part of the book that I've just read to you there. What he's talking about there, about binding this lion and starting to drag him to the table with everybody else looking on mockingly with weapons and torches... He's trying to paint a picture of us of John chapter 18. For in John chapter 18, the hour has come for Jesus. This is the time. This is the time he was created for and made for. This is the moment he was born for. The hour of his impending death has arrived. And so they arrest him and they bind him and they lead him away. Some commentators believe there would be at least a thousand soldiers at this point. That's an incredible scene. A thousand thousand soldiers marching towards the edge of gethsemane to bind the great lion and to drag him to the stone table and what we get then in god's incredible kindness through the apostle john is we get to look on through the eyes of lucy and susan we get to see what is taking place through john 18 what is actually unfolding for aslan the great lion jesus christ the great king of kings And so as we go through this, I want you to understand we get to look on at the roar that never came, which is today's title. We get to look on at the roar that never arrived. One roar from the Saviour, one swipe from the Saviour, one bite from the Saviour would have brought all things to an end. He could have called down myriads upon myriads of angels at any moment and said, enough. But it's a roar that never came. It never arrived. And as we get to look on at that roar that never came, I think in God's kindness, we also get to look on as Christians knowing why that roar never came, don't we? The roar never came because Aslan, the great lion, was dying in our place. That's why he allowed himself to get bound. That's why he allowed himself to get arrested. That's why he allowed these things to unfold. Because he loves you. And wanted you. And so this message today is not going to be applicationally heavy. In fact, there's barely any application in it at all. Because when John writes this, it's not with application in mind that he writes it. This text has nothing really to do with application. This text has to do with looking. It has to do with being Lucy and Susan and looking on at the garden and looking on as things unfold and marveling in the great Aslan. Marvelling in the great King of kings and Lord of lords. Marvelling at Jesus. And so you're not going to come away this morning with 10 things that we need to grow in. And if you're making notes with that in mind, don't bother anymore. What we're going to see is three things about Jesus that should cause us to step back and marvel and just realize he's incredible. The roar never came. But he is the king. He is the great lion. So three things. And here's the first thing. Number one, three things I want you to look at and see. Number one, look and see the Savior's power. Look at verse 3 with me again. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Right here, having Jesus' come out of the upper room He's now been through the garden. He's now entering, exiting the garden. And there is this great multitude, this great army coming towards him to arrest him and bind him and to come after him. And then in verse 4 we read, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, Notice... I am he. <laughs> that bit, I am he, is packed with information and that's where it does help, at least in minimal form, to know New Testament Greek. Because New Testament Greek doesn't translate as I am he. That's what the translators put in to help us understand it. The New Testament text is actually in the Greek is "ego egoami. I am. There is no he. So what Jesus is actually saying is They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And that is packed with theological information. That is packed with theology because he is claiming there without any question to be the great I am. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3? God says to Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses is encountering God in the burning bush and and he's panicking about, how am I going to do this? How am I going to go to Pharaoh and expect all these people to go? Who shall I tell them has sent me? And God says, Ego me, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Tell them that the great I am has sent you to release His people. Well, in John chapter 8 then, Jesus Christ is being questioned about who on earth He thinks He is. He's saying to them about being better than Moses and better than Abraham. And they stop him and say, hang on, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? You're greater than the patriarch Abraham? And Jesus says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. And they kick off at this point. They spend time gathering stones because they want to stone him and kill him. Because they are aware that you're claiming to be God. You're claiming to be the great I am that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And Jesus is saying, I am. It's exactly who I am. And we see then the phrase used here once again in John 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, Ego eme. I am. Check out what happens next. Look at the effect of what happens when he says this. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, Ego and me, they drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) That's really cool. A thousand soldiers, the great high priests, everybody has come to see the arrest of Jesus Christ. There are a thousand soldiers around the place. They all start to approach him. He, knowing what would happen to him, moves forward to encounter them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego and me. Boom! They all fall to the floor. Isn't that incredible? That's like a science fiction moment. It's like one of those moments where you, you see this superhero just somehow ejecting this, this invisible boom, out from everybody and everybody falls over and collapses. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. We can so easily just read that and go, oh, that's a bit odd. It's not odd at all. It is Jesus Christ revealing, I am God. Boom. me. And everybody, everybody falls to the ground. That's a common reaction all the way through the Bible when people encounter divine revelation. In Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel catches a glimpse of the Lord, when the Lord is calling Ezekiel to come and serve him, it says that he falls on his face. He's so overawed at the Lord, so he falls to the ground. Luke chapter 5, where Jesus himself calls Peter, and we get that wonderful scene where Peter's fishing in the boat, and he hasn't caught anything all day and all night. And so he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And Jesus comes to the edge of the beach and says, listen, put your nets out the other side. And Peter's like, what is the point? I've been here all night. He puts the nets out. He catches a great catch to the point where other fishermen are having to come out and help him. And he gets to the shore. What happens? Peter falls to the floor and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He is falling to the floor with his face in the dirt because he's aware there is a divine thing about you that I cannot put my finger on and the best place for me to be then is my face in the dirt before you. The Apostle John, when he's on the island and he's given the vision of revelation by God the Father, it says very clearly there that as I encountered the Lord, I fell to the floor as if dead. As he sees the risen Lord on the island, his only response is on his face before the Lord. My friends, that is exactly what we see here in John 18. As Jesus steps forward out of the garden, as this great multitude and army fiercely want to arrest him and bound him, as the great lion comes forward and they ask him, Who are you? He tells them, Igwami. And they fall to the ground. behold, The power of your God. Do you see that? It's incredible. This is the power of the great lion. This is the power of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Sometimes you encounter people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and they talk to you about that day when they allegedly are going to meet Jesus and they say, well, to be honest, if he does exist, I can't wait because I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. A few things that I haven't been happy about here on earth. My friends, I'll tell you what's going to happen on that last day when you encounter Jesus Christ and Lord and Lord. When you see him, the great I am, you will fall to your feet. You will fall to the floor and your face will go into the ground. You will not be questioning him. Where the Bible says that every knee will bow, it's not an optional thing. I was in, oh, I didn't realize it's him. It will be an involuntary human reaction to encountering the great I am. That's the power of God. Muslims believe that in the garden and post the garden where Jesus is being arrested, that's the bit where he lost the plot. That's the bit where he revealed he wasn't God. That's the bit where it all went horribly wrong for him. And So they're happy to say, well, he's a good guy and he's a great preacher. But (laughs) sad, eh, the way it finished. He got arrested and bound and then he was killed. And what a shame. My friends, John 10 says this. It says, No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I've received from my Father. Is this a moment of weakness for Aslan? Is this a moment of weakness for Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords? Nope. He is walking from the garden to lay his life down. And just in case we doubt it, As they approach him and ask him who he is, ego and me, and everybody hits the ground. Everybody begins to fall to the ground because they are encountering divine revelation. This isn't a weak man. This is God. And they are encountering the wonderful greatness and majesty of the great King of kings and Lord of lords. Behold the power of God. Look and see. Look and see the Savior's power. That's not all I want you to see. Number two, Look and see the Saviour's resolve. See, between verses 1 and 2, so much takes place. Because between verses 1 and 2, the Garden of Gethsemane takes place. And if we're truly going to understand, I think, and marvel at the incredible bit in verse 4, where we get to see the Saviour's resolve, we first of all have to understand and feel the garden. See, John just talks about it quite matter-of-fact because he's aware there are other Gospels that include that. But I don't always just just to assume that. So if we're going to see and marvel at the Saviour's resolve, let's first look at the garden. So if you turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 14. Just go back for a moment there. Because Mark, I think, very helpfully explains to us the scene that takes place between verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 18. You know, there is a verse that I brought it when we were on retreat last year in a famous hymn that I think is so helpful in understanding this point. The verse says, Oh, help me understand it. Help me understand To take it in. What it meant to thee. The Holy One. To bear away my sin. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. Lord, help me to understand. What it meant to thee. Jesus. The Holy One. To bear away my sin. I, I think if you could talk to that hymn writer... I would take him to Mark chapter 14. And I said, look, there are things in here that I think help us to understand what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear our sin. Let's read from verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, he's referring there to what took place right at the end of the upper room. It appears, as you read the other Gospels, they not only Jesus prayed for them, but they also sung a hymn. And then they went out. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass by from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's what takes place between verses 1 and verses 2 of John chapter 18. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. What did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away your sin? What it meant to thee, to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to take our sin on our behalf? Here's what it meant. It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. That's what it meant to him. It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God, God's righteous and full and furious anger for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. See, make no mistake, Jesus Christ is fully God. That's why as He stands forward from the garden, He can say, ego and me, and everybody falls around, around Him. He's fully God. But He's also fully man. To be our sin bearer, he had to be just like us. He had to be man just like us. And yet he would have never been able to achieve that if he hadn't also been fully God. But as he stands in the garden, as he sweats in the garden, as he goes through anguish in the garden, he's a man just like us. And We need to feel that. And we need to realize that. He's a great lion. But he's also a man. Tempted just as we are. Feels the things just as we do. Tempted just as we are. So it meant, what did it mean to thee to bear away my sin? It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. And what did that mean then? What it looked like, first of all, was relational abandonment. It meant going through this entirely alone And that's what Mark is trying to paint for us so clearly here. Beginning with Gethsemane and following on then throughout his arrest, his trial and his crucifixion, the Saviour was utterly abandoned. Relationally, he was utterly alone. And so Mark tells us in verses 27 through 31, Jesus prophesied of this desertion. He prophesied that he was going to have to walk alone. And then he deliberately paints the picture for us in 32 through 42 of helping us see that the hour of that desertion, the hour of that abandonment, has indeed begun. So Jesus takes his disciples with him to the edge of the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes in his three best, Peter, James and John, right with him and says, look, stay here with me. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus is starting to feel great anxiety, great fear towards what is about to take place. So he says to these three brothers, wait, hear, and pray. What do they do? They fall asleep. Each and every time Jesus returns from a prayer to the Father that is filled and packed with sorrow and burden and pressure, he returns to discover them asleep. And he's never with them again. Goes from this place bound as he's dragged to the stone table. He's arrested, he walks through it alone. He's beaten, he walks through it alone. He's crucified, he walks through it alone. What it meant to thee was complete and utter relational abandonment. But that wasn't the greatest sorrow for Jesus. What it also meant was distress of soul. My friends, we must never, ever lose sight of the distress of soul that Jesus endured in our place at Gethsemane. Sinke Ferguson says it this way. He says, the garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. It is. And it is sacred and solemn because it is a scene where we see within it great distress of soul. Look with me at... Verse 33 and 34 again. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The night before Jesus died, he enters into a garden with great distress of soul great anguish the physician Luke says he was so distressed at this point his sweat was like drops of blood and the reason for that he tells us why there is this distress of soul the reason according to verse 36 is because of the cup the cup that he began to look into in the garden the cup which is unarguably a reference to the wrath of God For our sin. See, J. Mahaney says this about the cup. He says, Isaiah 51 verse 17 describes the cup of his wrath. The cup of his righteous, furious wrath. This is the cup that the Savior is now contemplating. The cup that contains within it the full fury and fierceness of God's holy wrath against our sin. And as the Savior gazes into this cup He is brought face to face with this specific reality. The reality of bearing our sins and the reality of becoming the object of the Father's righteous and furious wrath. And that prospect is so horrific to the Savior at this moment that He couldn't even remain standing. My friends, that's exactly what occurs He is so overwhelmed as he looks into the cup. In verse 35 it says, Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. Do you see this? This is our King. This is our Lord. This is the Maker of heaven and earth. This is so not like Him. He's the one that stills the waves. He's the one that sends on the lightning bolts. He's the one that rebukes demons. He's the one that says to Lazarus, Come forth and he comes forth. But now as he's in the garden and he's contemplating the cup the cost of what this is really going to mean to go on that stone table in the place of us he's overwhelmed overwhelmed to the point where he falls on the ground and he cries Abba Father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me Yet not my will, but what you will. Jesus Christ knew full well that he was going to have to drink this cup. But he also knew that this was going to cost him everything. And if there was any other way, he would have gladly taken it. William Lane then, in his outstanding commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says this about that moment. He says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. This horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction in chapter 15, verse 44. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to this. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal but found hell rather than heaven open before him and he staggered. Jesus approached the Father knowing that his hour was fast approaching. He entered into the garden knowing full well, I am overwhelmed for the hour has indeed come. And so he's crying out to the Father, but as he enters into the garden, and as he begins to cry out to the Father, it is not heaven that opens up before him. It is hell. As he starts to contemplate the cup. The cup filled with the righteous wrath of God, which had been earned by us. And he staggers. So what did it mean to thee, the Holy One? To bear away my sin, it meant resolving to endure the wrath of God for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. It meant relational abandonment. He was going to have to walk through this completely alone and it meant distress of soul. As he contemplated the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink and he staggered. Turn back to John 18. We now know what happens between verses 1 and 2. Now I want you to behold then the incredible resolve of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, as we now know. Then, Jesus, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, knowing exactly what was about to happen to him, having already in the garden seen the cup and its fullness, and having staggered before it, knowing that this was going to cost him everything, having already started to experience relational abandonment, having already started to experience distress of soul, as he realizes what is truly going to happen to him as he hangs on the cross. Then Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, comes forward. He is not some whimpering mess behind the scenes. He's not like one of these girly boys that you see painted in the Renaissance pictures. He's the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords that steps forward out the garden and says, You're looking for me. Jesus comes forward. Friends, behold the resolve of your God. Do you see it? He's not only powerful, he is full of resolve for you. He's not going to give in in this moment. He has staggered at the scene of what it is going to cost him. But then Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, came forward. What did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear? Away our sin. Oh, it meant resolving to endure the wrath of God for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. And Jesus then, having contemplated it all, knowing all what was going to happen to him, came forward. That's your God. That's your King. That's your Saviour. Who do you think he is? What do you think he's like as you pray to him? Do you see him as just, well, he might help, might not? He is the great lion, the great king, full of resolve, even in his humanity, knowing, but I am going to do this. I am, because this is what I came for. Oh Lord, oh Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, your will. So I'm coming forward. You're looking for me. Behold, the Savior's resolve. And thirdly and finally, Look and see the Saviour's love. If we have been observant, then we should have seen the Saviour's love throughout the whole of John chapter 18. When you consider the Saviour's power that has been restrained, you should see His love. The roar that never came. He tells them, Ego and me, and they all fall to the ground. He could have just responded at that point and wiped them all out. One brawl. one swipe of the paw, one bite, and they're all gone. But he restrains the power because he knows they must bind me. They must arrest me. They must take me. Otherwise, there's no way for anybody to get saved. You can see his love then in his restraining of his power And I think you can see his love also in his resolve, can't you? It's not hard to see his love in the garden when you consider what it meant to thee. When you consider the horror of that, even in shadow form as we glimpse on through the eyes of of Lucy and Susan, you can still nonetheless see this is intense. And yet he beats that resolve. He moves forward in that resolve, tested to the absolute maximum. But he did so because he loves you. And he wanted you. And he wanted to make a way for the world to return to the Father. If we're observant, we should have seen his love throughout. And yet I think it's in verse 8 that I believe we see the Savior's love most clearly. See, in verse 4 through 7, he tells them, yes, it's me, ego me, and they all fall to the ground, only knows what happens as they're picking themselves up. They clearly haven't recognized him remotely what's gone on. They're probably looking around thinking, was that just an earthquake or what on earth has just happened? Nobody ever mentions it. They all know they've been radically affected by something. But they stand up again and he just says to them again, who are you looking for? I mean, who's going to want to speak up in that moment? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Ego me. I'm here. And they start to arrest him. And in verse 8, we read this. Jesus answered I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go. My friends, behold in that moment a wonderful pointer to substitution. And that's where we see His love. If you're looking for me, which I know you are, then take me. ego me. And you will all fall to the ground but not in this moment. Bind me. The great lion is lying down for them and saying, take me, take me to the stone table. Take me to Calvary. Do with me what you know you've got to do. But let them go. Take me. But let them go. My friends, in that moment in verse 8, we do, I think, get to the very heart of the gospel. The love of God seen in substitution. The love of God seen in saying, take me and not them. Take me. Take me, but not Coyote. Take me, but not Mike. Take me, but not Gaston. Take me, but not Julie. Take me. You've come for me, but let them go. My friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, that verse gets to the very heart of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is that God made us. God made us and knitted us together in our mother's womb. And yet all of us as mankind have rejected God. He made us to find our delight in Him, our peace in Him, our courage in Him, our strength in Him. He made us to spend all time with Him. And yet all of mankind has decided I'm going to reject him and I'm just going to take creation instead. I'm going to do my own thing. And I might tip the hat to God every now and again. But I'm not into that. It seems a bit full on for me. I'll just see how I go. That's what sin is all about. Sin is rejecting God. It's saying to Aslan, looking him in his eye, I'm not that into you really. Stuff on. And I don't even know if I believe in you. I just want to do my own thing. God says very clearly that when we do that and we sin against Him, we are removed from Him. In His holiness and His majesty, His holiness and our sin cannot be reconciled just by us saying, oh, sorry about that. We are cut off from God, not only now, but for all eternity, because He is a righteous and holy and just judge. In effect, we are utterly ruined in that moment. But that's when Jesus Christ, who was the Word, and was with the Word, decided 2,000 years ago, sent by the Father, on the greatest rescue mission ever told, born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, lived a perfect life, and then at 33 years old, died in our place, saying throughout, I'm dying for you. So take me, and let them go. And the way to make that death real to you, is talked about through the whole of the Bible. Paul says, if you confess me, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, then you will be saved. He will then have died for you. He will have been your substitute. It's a gift. The greatest gift ever told where Aslan, the great lion, allows himself to be bound and pulled to the stone table with a dagger over him, declaring all those who put their faith in me, you'll be saved. That'll take a and not you. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then behold your God. One day you will bear your knee to Him. I urge you, in that moment, ensure that as you bow your knee to Him, it is one where He says, welcome home, son or daughter. And not one of, as you bear your knee to me, now away from me for all eternity. I, I don't want that for any friend. By any person I've ever met in my entire life. Why would you want that? The great King of Kings and Lord of Lords came 2,000 years ago to reveal to us God. What more does he have to do for you to bow the knee? He died in your place, making it clear that if you put your faith in me, then God will be your father again. You will be reconciled to that which made you. You will come back to that which you were made for, to find your identity and strength and purpose. God knowing that when you die and you see him face to face he will say welcome home child put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior then today if you've got questions about that then come and ask him and I'll talk to you all day because this is important and vital stuff but if you already know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior I want to encourage you brothers and sisters. As you then see these faces in John chapter 18, verse 8, where he says, let these men go. As you see their faces, I want you to realize they're there there to represent you. It's your face that he's talking about there. And as you see your face, see his love. Because he's talking about you. You've come for me, so let them go. They're saved by my sacrifice, so take me. My friends, behold then your God. Look and see his power, the power that in grace he can say his name and over a thousand soldiers fall to the ground before him. Behold his resolve. That even though he encountered great suffering in the garden, he comes forward. He comes forward as your sacrifice, as your propitiation, saying, bind me and arrest me and take me and let them go. Behold his love. How do you apply this? Just by marveling by looking on and saying what a saviour and he's your God let's pray well father what a scene oh lord firstly thank you thank you for giving us the gift of written word so that we can look on with eyes today and see what happened. Well, thank you for helping us at moments to feel like we were in the garden with the Savior. Thank you for helping us to look on with stadium seats surrounding this scene, realizing we are involved. And Savior, what a marvelous Savior you are. Full of power, full of resolve, full of grace and full of love. God, as we consider you, would you never be small in our eyes, but would you dazzle us? Would we see you as the great creator and the great lion of the tribe of Judah, one who is stepping forward in our place and saying, take me and let them go? And would that truth affect us each and every day of our lives? Would we live there? And would we stand then beholding our God in marvellous and incredible awe? Because what a saviour you truly are.